we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week we are talking about the issue that is in shorthand referred to as recalcitrant countries. In other words, countries that either refuse or slow walk the return of their citizens from the United States, usually because they're criminals of one kind or another, either illegal immigrants who came to the attention of ICE because of crimes they committed, or often legal immigrants or some legal status they have who commit a crime and therefore make themselves deportable. And so here to talk about the issue, we have two guests who know a lot about this. First, a representative, Tom Tiffany. He's a congressman who represents the 7th District of Wisconsin, which is northern Wisconsin. And John Fury, who is here at CIS, is director of investigations and was at ICE for four years, ending as chief of staff for ICE. So, Congressman Tiffany, I want to start with you. You have some legislation to address this issue. I just wanted to start with the fact that the statute already says that State Department, when informed by Homeland Security that a country is not cooperating, is being recalcitrant in taking back its own citizens, is supposed to discontinue issuing certain visas. The theory, of course, is that if people we gave visas to before they won't take back, then why on earth would we give them more visas? But this hasn't been used very often, and it's been used only in the most limited way. And so I wanted you to tell us a little bit about how you see the problem and what your proposal would do about it. Yeah, first of all, Mark and John, it's really good to join you here at CIS, and I want to continue to thank you for the work that you do on this issue, because it informs a lot of us, and you have a lot of people out there that work on this issue, including up on Capitol Hill, that count on information like you put out to be able to bolster the case that we're making that we should have a secure border here in America. So the genesis of the Alien Criminal Expulsion Act, or the ACE Act, that I've introduced is to say to China that you need to take back your immigrant and non-immigrant visa holders here in the United States that have committed a crime that you have to take them back. The Biden administration is not doing that at this point as they're ignoring most immigration laws in America at this point. And it came out of Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan where President Xi, shortly after that trip by Speaker Pelosi, said that we're not going to accept any of our natives, Chinese natives, back to our country from the United States that have committed a crime. So we said in combination with that statement by President Xi, the lack of enforcement by President Biden and the Biden administration 
we said we want to strengthen the law even more, and that's what the ACE Act does, saying that State Department and Department of Homeland Security, they have to return these people to, for example, China or any other recalcitrant country. It is not just China. It's other countries that are recalcitrant also. So any country that's recalcitrant under American law, we would put a hold on all immigrant and non-immigrant visas is what we would do, is we would put a hold. No one can come into the country from, for example, China under this bill. So, and just for listeners, not everybody knows the details. Non-immigrant means visitor visas of all kinds, student visas, tourist visas, all of that. And then immigrant visas are self-explanatory. Yeah, I'm really glad you bring that up because that's quite important because that's how you can put pressure on a country like China because they have many people that are wealthy, who are close to President Xi. They're part of that inner circle of people who are deemed the good actors over in China. And if they can no longer come to Broadway in New York, if they can no longer go up to you know, the Rocky Mountains on a trip or whatever. Or their kids can't go to Stanford. Kids can't go to UW-Madison, right. one of the preeminent research institutions in America. Then hopefully they will begin to put pressure on leadership. And as you suggested, China's been pretty bad on this even before this most recent incident. There are other countries that slow walk or refuse returns, but China's been one of the worst actors on this long predating this most recent incident, right? Yes. And they've been treating America at times as a dumping ground for criminals that they just leave them here in America, including some people that are hardened criminals. And it certainly has been part of the crime wave that we've seen across the United States. While there's certainly many other components to it, we should be doing everything we can to get control of that and not allow a country to simply treat America as a dumping ground. Right. Before I get to John, I want John to talk a little bit about how this works now. Have you gotten any positive response from the Democrats? I mean, this was, in a sense, a calculated insult, not just to the United States in general, but specifically to Speaker Pelosi. And, you know, I, I mean, get it, she's in the other party, but it seems to me this is the kind of thing that there should be some Democratic support for or openness to. Yeah, it was clearly a slap in the face to Speaker Pelosi by President Xi. Mm -hmm. And so the short answer is no, I haven't heard from any Democrats in regards to this. But one of the principal things we're attempting to do, sitting in the minority, about to go into the majority, we wanted to make sure that this issue was being raised before January of 2023. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make sure it was out there and we have some people covering it, of course, including CIS. So we wanted to get that start. We've got that start. And I would expect that we're going to bring this back after January 1st of 2023. And you will be returning because you won re-election. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very grateful to the voters of the 7th Congressional District. We were able to win our race November 8th. So really looking forward to going back for my second term now. And, you know, sitting on Judiciary Committee, that's the home of immigration reform. And with Jim Jordan about to ascend to the chairmanship, we expect that with the background that we have on immigration and all we've done over the last two years, that we're going to be fully prepared to put together a package to be able to secure the southern border. One thing that I just want, again, I want to get to John, but you have taken something of a leadership role on some immigration issues. For instance, 
was it a year ago or so, maybe two years, I don't, I lose track after because of COVID, you on your own dime went down to the Darien Gap in eastern Panama, which is this notorious area where a lot of people who are illegals who are coming up, responding to President Biden's invitation to illegally come to the United States, go through there. There's all kinds of violence and exploitation and what have you. Again, your district is not a border district. Wisconsin isn't a border state unless you count Minnesota. I was just wondering, you know, why have you taken this kind of leadership role on the immigration issue? Well, what I found out is every state's a border state, but elected in a special in May of 2020. And the first trip that I did was down to Tucson with Representative Biggs and really had an opportunity to see how securing the border was moving apace and real improvement had been made. We heard from local sheriffs down in Arizona how real improvement had been made during the previous administration. Fast forward a year, went down to the McAllen sector in Texas on the Rio Grande and saw how it was falling apart in a very short period of time, just falling apart. But one of the things that I heard from some of the immigration, Border Patrol and others, they're like, you should go deeper, go deeper than Mexico, go deeper than Northern Triangle. You should see what's going on down at the Daring Gap in Panama. So we're like, that sounds like a great idea. And so we hooked up with some people like Michael Yan and others, and we were able to get a really eye-opening trip put together where we went to the Daring Gap, some of the densest jungle in all of the world, and we saw people coming from all over the world through the Daring Gap from South America on their way to the United States. Right. So, John, you were at ICE for four years, dealt with all kinds of issues. Obviously, this issue of trying to get countries to take their own criminals back is something that ICE kind of bangs its head against the wall a lot. If you could tell us just sort of briefly, first of all, what's the process for getting someone deported, a criminal, and how do recalcitrant countries interfere with that? I mean, there's all different ways, right? They either just say no, or they slow walk it and say, you know, manana, I'll get to it later. And, oh, I lost the dog ate my homework kind of stuff. So if you could just walk us through that briefly. Yeah, our relationship with countries is very dependent upon a number of factors. And some countries are more willing to cooperate with the United States than others. Most of them are happy to send their people here not so interested in taking them back. Now, there are a lot of factors that go into ICE's determination that the countries are calcitrant, refusal to accept charter flights, the ratio of releases to removals. What is releases? What does that mean? How many releases into the U.S. versus... Oh, I see. And so why would ICE release people into the U.S. if they're deportable? One of the complications in all of this is that ICE can't detain a person forever. And because of a Supreme Court ruling in 2001, the Zadvidas decision... ICE has about six months to make a decision about what to do with an individual. After six months of detention, the Supreme Court's opinion is that the constitutional question starts to rise. Is this indefinite detention? What are the implications there? And the court decided that after that 180-day mark, ICE can continue to detain a person only if there is a significant likelihood of removability in the reasonably foreseeable future. Now, that's a phrase that every ICE removal officer knows well. They've shortened it to slurf. That's what they call it. <laughs> and so at that 180-day mark, they go around from detention facility to facility and say, is there slurf? Can we continue to detain this person or do we have to release them? In other words, basically, is there any progress being made with that other government? And if they stiff us, as 
the congressman pointed out, the Chinese said, what do we do? Well, at that point, we just released the person back into the U.S. And that was one of the main concerns of the dissent in the Zavidas decision was that by making this six-month timeline, the Supreme Court has effectively put foreign countries in control of the U.S. immigration policy. If a hostile country wants to release one of their criminal aliens into our society, they just got to wait out the clock. It's essentially kind of the slow motion version of what Castro did with the Mariel Boatlift, where Jimmy Carter, like Joe Biden, invited, in this case, Cuban illegals with open arms and open hearts, I think is the way he said it. And Castro just emptied his prisons into the United States. And that's why this tool is so important. And it's a wonderful thing Congress put it into law. Of course, the problem is you have multiple executive branches, multiple administrations choosing not to make use of it. As Mark mentioned, we saw it used once in 2001, again in 2016. And in both instances, it was very effective. Those countries said, okay, okay, we'll take our people back. But they were small countries. I mean, once it was what, Guyana, or, and then the other time was Gambia. I mean, these are tiny little countries, and there's only a few of them, that's, a few more countries that start with G. I mean, you've got to expand out of the alphabet there. So, uh, just Congressman, what would your bill do? In other words, how do you require an executive branch to do something? If they don't do it, then what? That's my point. Yeah, knowing the Biden administration, how they've handled all of the immigration issues as well as others, it would not be surprising if they would blow it off. But I guess I'd kind of defer to John here. Does this provide then for a course of legal action that perhaps someone can get into the courts and say, Biden administration, you're not implementing the law as it is written? The one change with the law is that this is both immigrant and non-immigrant, and that's where we're trying to put some pressure on, in particular, the Chinese, but as well as other recalcitrant countries. But I would kind of throw it over to John here, and would this give someone a course of legal action? Well, it would definitely ramp up the pressure to actually do something. There are a few different issues with the statute that we ran into. The first is actually the very first word, and it says, on being notified. In other words, DHS must first notify the State Department, that there's a problem. And if you don't have people in ICE's removals division who care about trying to make this happen, if you have a DHS secretary that doesn't care about people not being returned home, then there's no chance of the notification ever being sent over to the State Department. And even in the best case scenario, in the Trump administration, we had a secretary who wanted to make it happen, but there was still so much pressure from the State Department to prevent those letters from, from being sent over in the first place, because they don't want those international debates. They don't want to put pressure on countries, and they certainly don't want to put sanctions on a country that are going to upset tourism, travel, and so forth. So the State Department's perspective is, don't send us the letters, we'll negotiate. There might be some room for improvement in that part of the statute. But even if you do get past that, and the letters are sent over to the State Department, it says, on being notified, the State Department shall act. The State Department's opinion is, well, on doesn't mean right now. It means at some point in the future. Maybe it's 30 days, maybe it's two months, maybe it's sometime down the road. So we have a recalcitrant cabinet department as well as a recalcitrant country. Unbelievable. But the other problem is once the sanctions are invoked, the statute as currently written says it shall apply to immigrant visas, non-immigrant visas, or both. Now, the interpretation of that by the State Department is they can pick and choose any individual category of visa and a very small subsection of people 
for that to apply to. In other words, for Cambodia, the State Department discontinued the issuance of B visas for Cambodian Ministry of Foreign Affairs employees with the rank of Director General and above and their families. So the argument from the State Department is, well, we don't have to upset the entirety of visa issuance. It might be enough just to go after a certain portion of that government to get results. So this was, John, if I could interrupt you, this was one of the times that the Trump administration actually used this. And even then, it was only used in this very narrow way. So, I mean, what, 20 people maybe didn't get their visas or something like that. The Trump administration, they used it against a number of other countries. Did they ever use it more broadly or did the State Department always drag its feet? We did. And that's where the infighting happens. And that's the complication that the congressman's bill would actually address in a very helpful way. Because when it doesn't work, this small segment of people being targeted, ICE has to go and talk to the secretary and talk to the White House, talk to their colleagues over at the State Department and say, guys, it's time to ramp it up. It's been six months. Let's ramp it up a little bit more, right. expand the number of visas this applies to. And then maybe the State Department will, and they'll try the slightly expanded version for another six months. Well, then a year's gone by. And during that whole time period, we're still bringing in tons we're of stacking, people from that stacking country. Stacking up criminal aliens, presumably, as well. That's right. So the other interpretation of the statute is something that the Congressman's bill will require, as a matter of law, to be interpreted this way, is all immigrant visas or all non-immigrant visas or both, all of the above. And that would be much more effective because I can assure you, if a small little country learns that they're not going to be able to send to the United States anyone from their country as a non-immigrant, as a tourist, they will respond very quickly. Right. Mark, if I can break sure, in here. Sure, please. And this is, to me, this is a broader issue. And it's something when I was in the state legislature for nearly 10 years in Wisconsin, we became much more definitive in how we wrote language in our bills. And we did not leave this catch-all at the end and subject to the rulemaking of the department. It is a huge problem out here in Washington, and that's why we put that definitive language in there. And just generally speaking, we need to do better as a Congress in being definitive about our language and stop putting this catch-all that allows agencies, including like the State Department here, to do what they always want to do, which is less than what the law calls for and what the American people really expect. And think about President Trump went against the State Department and their recommendations in a variety of ways. And we had one of the most peaceful times in four years around the planet as a result of him being strategically tough. I mean, you look at the Abraham Accords in Israel. I understand I'm getting a little bit off the subject here, but what a win for the Middle East, for America, for the world. And it's because President Trump said to the State Department, I'm not always going to follow your recommendations because you guys actually embolden the dictators by being soft on them. If you would be tougher, it would be better for the world and better for world peace. And it's the same thing here, obviously. I had a boss once who said, you teach people how to treat you. And you know, when we allow Laos to dump criminals on us and basically thumb its nose at us when their citizens need to be deported, people get the message. And to your point on an immigration matter, President Trump got Mexico to agree to the Remain in Mexico program. This is where illegal immigrants who came across the border made some asylum claim, usually unfounded, but they were using it as a gimmick to get into the country. He got Mexico to agree that 
it would take those people back to wait in Mexico until their hearing dates came on. That wasn't going to happen on its own. That happened because he said, look, there are going to be certain sanctions. It wasn't visa sanctions, as in this case, it was trade sanctions. But the point is, if you use that kind of clout judiciously for specific purposes, you can get results. John, you did get some results in the Trump administration, right? Because there were a number of countries, like a dozen countries or something, that were not cooperating, not taking back their people. And, uh, you know, you twist their arm a little bit and they cry uncle. Yeah, no doubt. It was a bit of a struggle, but it did happen. But for was a the struggle of internally as opposed to with the countries themselves? It was between DHS and the State right, Department. Exactly. And you can imagine how complicated that is, even in the best of circumstances. And this is to the congressman's point. The Congress writes these wonderful enforcement tools, but Congress also provides so much discretion to the executive branch on how to carry them out or if they want to carry them out. And unfortunately, this administration in particular has exploited that discretion to not do anything. And on this particular issue, it does create some complications because the statute as currently written is focused on a singular alien. It says, when DHS determines that a country refuses to take back an alien, one person, visa sanctions are to be invoked until the country takes back the alien. That's the statute. Well, when you have years and years of administrations not using it and you build up thousands and thousands of people from these countries, it really complicates how we carry this out. Because if we were to invoke sanctions on country X and that country happens to have 3,000 people in the U.S., two-thirds of them with criminal records. The problem is ICE doesn't have all those people detained. And so in theory, once those sanctions are invoked, they can stay invoked until ICE agrees to have them lifted. And that's a point of concern for the State Department because Ah, suddenly the power is totally within a bureaucrat running the removals division at ICE. And once these sanctions were invoked, there was so much pressure from the State Department to us, to DHS, to say, hey, guys, it's okay now, right? You can lift those sanctions. And we're saying, look, they've taken back 50 people on a flight. We've got about almost 2,000 more people we have to get back. We have to go locate them. We have to find them. We have to bring them in. Because they had to be let go because they were let go years ago. Right, exactly. And that does create some angst from the State Department's perspective. And in their defense, it is a bit of a problem for the country that ICE just doesn't really know where these people are. Why didn't we detain them the whole time? Well, we can't. So what has happened is ICE has decided, at least under the Trump administration, that they'll only agree to lift sanctions if they feel comfortable that there's a repeatable process, that the country is cooperating for a period of time, so much so that we believe if the sanctions are lifted, the country will continue to cooperate from that point forward. So in other words, they don't get rewarded for one plane load of criminal aliens being deported. But it's not as black and white as the statute assumes, one person being arrested and removed. Now we have years of non-use. We have this gray, complicated power play between two departments. Mark, could I follow up with a question? Please, please, yeah. You referred to the Zavidas decision. Did I say that correctly? Has there been any follow-up on that case? Is there anything percolating through the courts at this point that could have an impact on that decision? Not that I'm aware of. There were some carve-outs in the decision. The Supreme Court did say that perhaps it wouldn't apply to someone with a terrorist background. So it's a matter of the executive branch flexing its muscle and being willing to, I don't want to say ignore the Supreme Court, but maybe 
interpret the Supreme Court's decision quite generously in the favor of the executive branch. Yeah, in order basically really to spark another lawsuit, because that's the only way you could get it back to a new configuration of the Supreme Court is to have a new lawsuit. So, John, obviously the congressman's bill is not just about China, but kind of the uh, Chinese slap in the face to the Speaker of the House was kind of proximate cause. Do we know how many deportable Chinese people there are that China's not taking back? Yeah, it's at least 20,000. Oh, my God. And maybe actually quite more than that. And so almost all of them are just kind of at large living in the United States. And again, a lot of them with criminal records. That's very frustrating for ICE is that these people entered. We have their entry records. We have images of their passports. We have a photo of their face. We have their fingerprints, perhaps. We have a lot of biometrics. The person might even say, yeah, I'm from China. And so we know that's where they're from. But the Chinese government is saying, well, we're not really sure. We're not quite sure. And we don't really want criminals being sent into our country, even though it's their criminal. (laughs) Unbelievable. It is surprising how many Chinese come across the border. I mean, we heard that from the trips that I've made to the southern border, as well as the Darien, the number of Chinese that are coming into the country. It is substantial. And these are illegal crossers where you could kind of See, China would, you know, might be able to say, well, you know, do we really know they're Chinese? Whereas if they were admitted on some kind of visa and then committed a crime, there's no doubt about who they are. So, Congressman, I want to ask you, you said that you haven't heard any uh, expressions of support from the Democrats, even though President Xi specifically was insulting or responding to the speaker's visit to Taiwan. Do you have a sense that, for instance, Congressman Jordan, who's going to be chairman of the judiciary, is receptive to this? Have you talked to other members on your side of the aisle about this? What we're doing in our office is putting together a group of issues that we think are quite important. This is one of them. Mm -hmm. There are other issues also that we're forwarding to judiciary staff and putting that in the mix as far as what will this secure the border package look like. I see. So we're just trying to make sure that we're contributing because I mean, if people have figured out anything over the last couple of years, I, I think the average person is understanding more and more. This is really a very multifaceted issue. It isn't just, okay, secure the border. Right. There are a variety of facets to our immigration law and to securing the border. And by the way, Mark, I would emphasize that I see this as two different issues, immigration and securing the border. And securing the border should come first. That's what we should be doing, I believe. First thing out of the gate in the Judiciary Committee is putting together a package that secures the border. Then we move on to the immigration issue. Yeah, and actually, that's a good point because in the lame duck session, which is the session after the election, but before the new Congress comes in, there's been talk of trying to push some kind of you know, legalization package or immigration package, which would, you know, give green cards to maybe farm workers or maybe to DACA people or whatever in exchange, supposedly, for some kind of enforcement. What's this chatter over on the House? I assume Republicans, since they're going to take the majority, would not go for anything like that. Yeah, I don't know any reason why we would do that unless there was a and about face. I mean, when I think about the leadership on the Judiciary Committee on the Democrat side, they've really made no effort to put something that was a serious reform in place that secures the border. Right. It's all about legalization and actually creating more loopholes 
via Puerto Rico, the Solomon Islands, and places like that is what they've been trying to do. So, John, are there other measures you think that sort of the next step beyond this legislation that would address specifically this issue of recalcitrant countries? I'll say this. And this tool can be so powerful if Congress forces the executive branch to use it. I think that it is part of what the congressman just said, creating an environment that is welcoming to those who play by the rules, but discourages those who overstay visas or come across the border illegally. All this talk about border security is important, of course, but border security, in my opinion, starts inside the United States. There's no reason for anyone to jump a wall to evade the border patrol if there aren't any jobs available for them here in the United States. If there's a robust interior enforcement effort, then it makes the job of the border patrol that much easier. Congressman, you mentioned that there are some other measures that the House Republicans are kind of gathering together for possible border enforcement or immigration enforcement measure next year. Any couple, two, three of them that you can off the top of your head in addition to this that you think might be in such a package? I'll certainly be encouraging is that we should complete the wall. I mean, it, it's very clear that it works when used effectively, and it should be a key component of it. And I think you go back and you look at Remain in Mexico and the success that was Remain in Mexico, and you may not do something identical to that, but something that's similar to that, where if you're going to have your asylum hearing, you're not going to have it in the United States. You're not going to be able to stay here for a few years and then maybe show up. You have to wait outside because that is what really puts the stop sign up Right. if you want to come here illegally and just remain in Mexico going away, catch and release starting. I mean, it was a green light for all of the world. And to still, come is, in, still is. And still is. And right, still is. Right. In fact, the numbers for October, we have another record month here in October of 2022, larger than 2021. 2021 was larger than 2020. And you go right on down the line. So um, you know, I think it's those type of things that are going to be in the package. I would think like the Flores decision will probably be reviewed in that package also. Right. Unfortunately, until there's a new administration, my sense is we're going to see a lot more of this. I mean, this legislative activity is necessary because bills often will take several iterations, several Congresses to come true. Because even if, for instance, a good package like this, including this recalcitrant countries measure, is passed by the House, there's still real possibility that Democrats would never bring it up in the Senate because they're still going to have control of the Senate, it looks like. Yeah, it's a centerpiece of the Biden policies. I mean, this is one of certainly the top five, probably the top three. I mean, he made it very clear as candidate Biden in 2020 that we're going to open the borders. So it's a fundamental thing that they believe in, and they're not going to reverse course until the American people make them reverse course. I mean, that's really what's going to have to happen here. But we need to continue to elevate the issue, put good legislation before the Senate in 2023, and then really highlight to the American people that we're serious, that this needs to be done. And it's not just in regards to people coming into our country illegally. When you see what's happening with the number of people on the terror watch list, that should scare the heck out of all Americans. And with the fentanyl that's out there that comes to 
every part of America, including where I'm at, number one killer of young people 18 to 45. I mean, Scott Adams, the author of the Dilbert cartoon, he's referring to it as a weapon of mass destruction at this point. And I think that's accurate at this point. I mean, it's poisonings. It's no longer uh, drug overdoses going on in America. It is flat-out poisonings. And that's the one thing I cannot understand why Democrats who have people dying in their districts as a result of this, many of them unknowingly taking fentanyl via another delivery method, that just that alone they wouldn't say, we've got to secure the border. Right. Unfortunately, I mean, we're not a partisan organization, but I think the disappointing results for the Republicans and the consequent lack of kind of a chastising of the Democrats in the recent election is probably means that you're going to have two more years of no changes in direction. The president said specifically that he's not going to change anything when he was asked about what was his response to the election. So I think you guys have your job cut out for you. And John, when you take over ICE in a couple of years, maybe uh, you'll have your job cut out for you as well. I want to uh, thank Congressman Tom Tiffany for coming in. He is sponsor of legislation to try to tighten up or and respond to this issue of countries that don't take back their own citizens who have committed crimes. And John Fury, director of investigations here at the center, who was at ICE for four years and was very much involved in this issue of deporting criminals and countries preventing are doing that. So thank you, Congressman. Thank you, John, for coming in. And we'll have one or both of you back probably in the future because this issue isn't going away. Yeah, good to join you, Mark and John. And we just got to keep pushing the boulder up the hill and look for that opportunity. I believe at some point the opportunity is going to come and we need to be ready. And that's what we plan to do in the Judiciary Committee. Thank you. Thank you. And finally this week, I wanted to talk about the impending end of Title 42. It was a couple of weeks ago when a federal judge ruled that it had to be discontinued and gave the administration a certain amount of leeway. So about three weeks from now, later in December, the Title 42 is going to end. The administration, of course, has been trying to end it in a different lawsuit. It's a long story. It's complicated. But the point is it's going to go away. And Title 42 is not even really an immigration measure. It's a public health measure. It was put into effect during the Trump administration when the pandemic started as a pandemic control measure. And what it does is it allows the Border Patrol to just bounce people out of the country when they catch them at the border without any hearings or paperwork or anything. Under the Trump administration, it was very widely used. A large majority of people of illegal border crossers were sent back, were expelled under Title 42. The Biden administration undid almost every other Trump policy and partly undid Title 42 in the sense that they kept it in place. They kept using it, but for a smaller and smaller share of the border jumpers that the Border Patrol caught each month. And uh, nonetheless, it's the only quasi-border control measure this administration has been willing to use to try to prevent things from getting even worse than they are. And they're getting worse even with the use of Title 42 pretty rapidly. But the Homeland Security Department itself estimates 
that if Title 42 ends, the number of people coming across the border could double uh, as much as almost triple up to something like 18,000 a day. So we're talking well over half a million illegal alien border crossers, the large majority of whom will simply be released into the United States every month. In a sense, Title 42 had to end because it's dishonest. It's a legal fiction. Pandemic's over, and the idea that somehow we should keep using this measure as a border control measure doesn't make sense. I think it actually is necessary to wind it up and end it. The problem is the Biden administration has nothing in place to replace it, has nothing, is no plan, nothing meaningful to actually limit the number of people entering the United States without authorization. The one thing that they seem to be doing, or part of their plan anyway, is something Todd Benzman here at the center wrote about based on a recent trip to Mexico, and that is a new policy really just started in September where they are essentially eliminating the need to sneak across the border and working with the Mexican government, Homeland Security working with the Mexican government, to pre-clear, as it were, people who would otherwise sneak across the border and just give them an okay and have the Mexican authorities deliver them to the American authorities. In other words, essentially redefining border crossing and legalizing what would have been illegal. And my sense is that the goal here is to define away the problem, that the same number of the enormous number, hundreds of thousands a month of people who have no right to enter the United States, they're outside, they're beyond the limits passed by Congress, but are just let in anyway. But this way, they don't have to sneak across the border and then be let go, which means they turn up in the Border Patrol statistics that are reported each month. Instead, they would be pre-cleared for parole, immigration parole, which is basically letting people into the country who have no right to be here, and thereby they won't show up in the so-called encounter statistics in that monthly number of arrests that are reported pretty widely. That seems to be the only thing they have in, in mind. In other words, they're not trying to limit the number of people entering the United States outside the law, what they're trying to do is redefine the terms and basically, you know, kind of rechristen them and turn them into supposedly legal entrance by this massive illegal abuse of this very limited authority called parole, which Congress granted the administration. In a sense, you know, there is a sort of worse is better vibe here. That's from Lenin in the previous century. But the point is, the end of Title 42 forces the Biden administration to confront the contradictions in its policy. And what they're trying to do is wiggle out of it by redefining illegal border crossers as legal. I don't think that's going to succeed. The numbers are going to balloon no matter what they do. And it'll be interesting to see what choice you know they're going to make, which way they're going to go. Are they going to continue along this line of essentially trying to abolish the border? Or will they change tack doing the kind of thing, say, Bill Clinton would have done years ago, 
and triangulate, as it were. In other words, if you're losing on an issue, uh, you know, switch sides. President Clinton did that on immigration. He did it on welfare. He did it on a broad number of issues. He was a gifted politician. I'm not sure that's uh, the, the current administration has that kind of either political skill or political flexibility to react that way. Either way, later this month, we're going to enter a period where um, as the, I don't know if this is a real Chinese saying or not, but they say, you know, may you live in interesting times and it's a curse, not good wishes. I think the border is going to see even more interesting times than it's seeing now once Title 42 is lifted, which is supposed to happen on December 21st. So when that happens, uh, we'll be here to comment on it and talk about it, among many other things. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving, and I hope you'll tune in next week. Thank you. Thank you.